0: Welcome, everybody. Let's talk real estate, your weekly BS with Barry Saywitz about the current commercial real estate market here in Southern California. As we take a no BS look at both sides of the issues driving this market today to find the best solutions going forward with our man right in the middle, Barry Saywitz. Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, Paul. And good morning to all of our viewers and our listeners out there. And if it's Tuesday, which it is, we are talking real estate. I am Barry Saywitz, president of the saywitz Company and managing partner of Saywitz Properties. And if it's one thing I've learned in my 30-plus years of doing this, it's to get good information, make good decisions, stay out of trouble, take your vitamins, and hopefully have a good day. And so I'm excited about today's show, as always. Uh, but we have a special guest with us. But before we get to our guest, I do want to have a, a quick... Uh, and special shout out! Uh, today is the birthday of my uh, favorite and only living aunt. So happy birthday, Aunt Sandy! Uh, tomorrow is the 80th birthday uh, for my father. So happy birthday to my father! We're glad both of you are still with us and kicking. Uh, I won't say how old they are, but let's just say they're older than me and less than a hundred. And so with that said, I want to welcome our guest, Michael Orowitz, principal, founder, CEO, El Presidente, as we call him, of OSM Investment Company in Los Angeles. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Nice to be on the show.
0: Yeah. So thanks for joining me. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, OSM Investment Company is a, I don't want to say full service, but close to full service uh, real estate investment management company. And you guys dabble in a bunch of different things. I guess give us a little background.
1: graduated from UCLA and that's how I met Barry. And we have uh, both taken different paths in uh, our pursuit of uh, a real estate career. And so shortly after I graduated from UCLA, I worked for a large national syndicator of apartments, and it was the 10th largest landlord at the time, owning about 30, 35,000 apartment units across the United States. And I worked there for about eight years after I graduated from school. And then I decided to venture out on my own. And I was fortunate enough to uh, have them as my equity development partner in the first handful of apartment deals that I pursued on my own.
0: You started in Los Angeles and then as things have grown and you started with the multifamily, you've grown really statewide and then also have stuff outside of the state across the country and then dabbled in different aspects of the real estate market in terms of uh, other types of real estate. What made you, I guess, transform from the apartment side of it into where you are today with the various different aspects of the company?
1: I started in affordable housing, and that gave me an opportunity to learn about tax exempt bond financing, low income housing tax credits, and various other government subsidies that really encourage the development and investment in affordable housing. And so once I got my portfolio started and my acquisitions going, we started to look for other opportunities in conventional housing and That led to some student housing, uh, mostly around Chico State and some around USC. And then that also got us into doing some senior housing. And so it gave us a platform as we uh, expanded our portfolio in Los Angeles and in Central California and Northern California, we started to see other opportunities and other types of real estate where we already had a geographic footprint. So we also looked at doing some self-storage projects as well as some retail projects. And we have since grown to almost 3,000 apartment units in California, Nevada, and Tennessee. And we now have a small retail presence in each of the geographic areas where we currently own apartments.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's really grown and it's become its own animal. And, and today it's 60 plus properties uh, in a wide geographical area and, and different genres. And so I always enjoy talking to you because when we uh, chit chat, uh, you're one of the few people that uh, has as many problems as I do. And then we, you seem to make me feel a little bit better as opposed to when I talk to other folks, they always say, oh, you have a lot of uh, drama going on and, uh, and you made me feel better about my day. And so at least you're one of the few people who can sympathize with what I deal with all the time because you're doing the same thing. We have shared experiences
1: and misery likes
0: company. Yeah, so the good and correct. the good and the bad. And uh, we have traveled uh, other parts of the world together looking for real estate deals and a good time. And so uh, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with us. Let's delve in. I want to sort of take it in pieces. Uh, I always enjoy the apartment side of things. Let's start with that. And, and I guess the one question that I want to ask you is, so you own a bunch of stuff in Los Angeles and elsewhere, but with all of the, the things that have gone on beginning, with COVID and the moratorium and the no eviction and, gee, tenants don't have to pay their rent and rent control and all of these other things that that are going on in Los Angeles. What is your view of investing and continuing to own in Los Angeles going forward? I mean, does it make sense to continue to operate uh, in LA or is it time to get out and go someplace else?
1: That's a very complex question to answer and I will do my best. So we own about 500 units or 600 units in Los Angeles. Through the pandemic, Los Angeles was the most challenging. Los Angeles passed one of the most draconian uh, rent moratorium and eviction moratoriums in the country. And it also uh, lasted uh, a very long time. In fact, it just uh, finally expired uh, in March of this year. Of this year,
0: right? I mean, that's three years from when it started. Correct. And personally,
1: we had some properties where almost 75% of the tenants were not paying rent. And from some information that I recently read in the Los Angeles Times, there are estimates that almost $1 billion worth of rents remain unpaid during the moratorium, and the likelihood of collecting it is going to be very low. We have hired an attorney to come work in-house as general counsel to assist us in navigating the complexities not only here in los angeles but in other areas where we own property to follow through on the unlawful detainers against the tenants who continue to not pay rent in los angeles you know they have up to one year to repay the rent that they owe however you can't evict them for the unpaid rent we can only evict tenants for unpaid rent from after march 31st So we have worked very hard with our in-house counsel to advise and to encourage tenants who owe us large balances with the likelihood of never being repaid to try to enter into repayment agreements and to find alternate housing. And we've worked very closely with those tenants who have had uh, challenges and we've worked with uh, repayment plans. So you ask a good question, what is the investment analysis going forward and from that perspective at least now that the moratorium is over there's a much clearer picture as to what the rights of landlords are with respect to the tenant landlord uh, and we've started to look at deals but but I think the bigger challenge is not so much the, the rent moratoriums, which have now ended but what is the financing environment like Uh, with, uh, you know, the higher interest rates and a lot of the lenders who were very active in lending in Los Angeles, such as First Republic Bank and PacWest are no longer uh, viable options for financing. So I think that's really become a, a more significant factor in our analysis of doing additional acquisitions in Los
0: Angeles. And so my other part of the question is, I get, and we've had other folks on the show, I've asked them the same thing. Um, I'm curious to to your thoughts. So do you continue to own in Los Angeles uh, or do you just get rid of what you got and go buy elsewhere in Tennessee where you have stuff or other parts of the country where it's more uh, landlord friendly, I'll say, and easier to navigate, or or is the real estate market itself in Los Angeles such a prime market with the lack of uh, good housing? that long-term it's still just a good investment and it's gonna go up at the end of the day?
1: So we are not selling any assets in Los Angeles. We've owned many of our assets for many, many years and they have continued to perform well despite the, the challenges with uh, the rent moratoriums. And fortunately we have low uh, leverage on most of our property, So we were able to you know manage the non-payment of rent pretty effectively through the pandemic. And what we're seeing today is uh, rental rates that exceed what they were pre-pandemic. And uh, we have wait lists for many of our properties. And as soon as apartment units become vacant, we have a lot of activity and interest expressed in our apartment units. So from that perspective, I, I think the the market in Los Angeles will continue to be strong. It is a, a very, uh, uh, compressed market with a lot of demand and a lot of uh, good economic drivers. And even though you know we read in the papers about this exodus of residents from California to other states like Florida or Texas or Nevada or Tennessee, and it's true, there's so much housing demand in Los Angeles that it really has yeah. not seemed to impact our portfolio. So long-term, with the ending of the eviction moratorium and with what we're seeing with uh, our strong rental growth in our portfolio, we are looking for opportunities in Los Angeles, but the challenge really becomes the financing, and that's a challenge uh, throughout any, any properties that we're looking at. Our underwriting model has just changed dramatically. And what do, you, what
0: do you think about cap rates? I mean, obviously, interest rates are up. They're close to double what they were a year ago. And yet cap rates uh, across Southern California are still in the threes and the fours. And, and maybe you get something in a five. But, I mean, you have an inverse curve between the interest rate, which is more than the cap rate, which means that if you're going to go get financing on it, you're actually cutting into your return. And so, you know, to, to me, we both, uh, you know, we're economics majors. That dog doesn't really hunt. And, and so do you believe that cap rates have to come up or is there just so much money chasing so few deals that the stuff is still selling? Because I, I find that the lender that looks at the pro forma rent and, and, and doesn't give it the same I guess, credence that it did a year ago because they're going, look, you can't really raise the rents because you can't get the tenant out and you have rent control. And if you do get the tenant out, you got to spend a bunch of money to remodel it. And so you have to factor that in.
1: Uh, Correct. In every respect, Uh, that's the primary reason why we haven't purchased anything in Los Angeles in the last 24 months. And uh, it's been, it's been that situation for a while where, Cap rates were lower than borrowing rates. And you're correct. A lot of uh, investors had the model of buying older buildings and either you know paying tenants to relocate or uh, through attrition, uh, renovating units as tenants left on their own accord. And that model doesn't really seem to work any longer because of more strict rent control Uh, and protections for tenants have been passed in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, And those same restrictions don't really exist in in other states, such as Nevada and and Florida and Tennessee and Texas. And that's why a lot of capital and investment has moved to those states. But but at the same time, uh, there are... Uh, opportunities that will arise from from those challenges, where uh, people may have purchased properties with a, a model that doesn't work anymore, and right. may have a loan coming due, and that's sort of the type of opportunity that that we look for. And so, you know, Barry, you're correct. It's it, we're a private company. It's our capital, just like for yourself and so we can pick and choose the type of deals that we do whereas maybe some of these large equity funds they raise a lot of money from institutional investors
0: and they have to put it to work and they
1: have to place the money yep. and so they're going to you know place the money regardless of what's going on economically and maybe that's one reason why some deals are still getting done at low cap rates uh, because they have to place the money
0: right and and i guess that's really the question because you hit the nail on the head which is you know, i'm not forced to make a deal i'm not running to make a deal and i do think that there's going to be some pain out there and it may still take some time because there really is still pent up demand for apartments uh, throughout southern california so it's not like you can't i mean before you could just hold up your hand and you'd have a wait list and you'd fill the apartments and and, and it's not as as ridiculous as it was before, but it's still certainly very tight if you're a tenant looking for a good quality place. I think the perception out there, I'm curious what your thoughts are, from the tenant's perspective is, hey, the economy's struggling. We're going into a recession. (laughs) Uh, Interest rates are up. uh, Prices are not what they once were. And so, what we've seen is uh, people starting to haggle, right? And people Mm -hmm. offering Stupid things like I, I want, you know, the asking rent on apartments, $4,000. Would you take $3,000? Uh, and, and, you know, these things are like, no. Or you have a no pet policy and I have three dogs and would you take my three dogs with no pet rent and no pet deposit? And, and those people are, I think, not living in reality. They should go to Anaheim and hang out at Disneyland and in Fantasyland. And, but there is still pent up demand. But at the same time, I do think that the operator of real estate who bought something with a flawed model or bought something thinking prices go up forever or I can just hold up my hand and rent it, and then one day he can't do that, those are the people you and I wanna to talk to.
1: That's correct. And, and, and we're starting to see those opportunities as well, uh, especially on some listings that have sat for a long time, have gone stale. Uh, I think there's you know, two types of sellers out there, those who are realistic and those who are unrealistic. And naturally, um, we're looking for those realistic uh, sellers where they recognize that the marketplace has changed, uh, financing has changed, the leverage uh, for loans have changed. And in fact, we we recently purchased some single family homes that from a seller about a year ago, and he carried back the financing at 5% for, I think it's three years. And at the time, you know, our acquisitions analysts thought that was a little bit expensive, 5%, and I sort of thought the opposite because the Fed was already, you know, raising rates and signaling that they were going to be raising rates. And I thought, you know, 5% carry back financing without any uh, covenants and conditions or appraisals or, or heavy underwriting by a lender was a perfect deal and in hindsight, I couldn't be more pleased with uh, having made that decision. And I think those, those may be the types of creative financing that, that, that you know buyers such as myself uh, and maybe yourself and you know the private uh, individuals or the smaller organizations can look to uh, sellers for financing as well. And, and there are, I think those are, will be some uh, unique opportunities that yeah. um, that I'm looking for as well.
0: I agree. I mean, I don't want to one up you, but I did one of the similar and the rate was three and a half percent and was right yeah. as the the interest rates started to move. And it was an older seller and he just wanted security of coupon clipping and he couldn't get it in a triple net investment because those cap rates were very low and very competitive. And uh, didn't want to buy apartments or something else, just wanted to check. And so somebody who has the capacity to do that and then give them a decent amount of money up front and just make the problem go away. I think the other will be, you know, the pressure of selling, whether there's a death in the family or a divorce or my loan is coming due, those will drive some better deals as time goes on.
1: But the loan coming due is going to be a significant one. Uh, we we have purchased loans Uh, from some financial institutions and some debt funds and it's been a uh, business that that we've tried to expand but unfortunately uh, our line of credit for buying notes was uh recently uh, not renewed from one of the uh, lending institutions that is that that has been under uh financial pressure Uh, i'm not going to say which one um but but we are in the process of replacing that line of credit with another financial institution and so we sort of have a little bit of an optic into uh, you know, some of those pressures because most of the loans that we're buying are, are maturity defaults. And again, that's where I think for, for someone that's playing in the field that we play in uh, is where there are those types of distressed opportunities Uh, Certainly we can't compete with, you know, the big institutions like the Blackstones who are buying, you know, very large portfolios. I read this morning about Kennedy Wilson buying a $2.6 billion portfolio, but in the $1 to $5 million range, uh, we can be very competitive and and find opportunities on apartments and and retail properties uh, with the Hope of either getting paid off at maturity, or if not, we foreclose on the asset and hopefully purchased it at a lower than market basis.
0: And, and don't you find that um, the activity in deals that are out in the marketplace, if you would have rewound 12 months ago or even six months ago, where somebody might have five or ten offers on a property, or five or ten people looking or circling around. There's only one or two now. And and if they're telling you that they got 10 offers, they're not all real or no. serious and they're bottom fishers. No. And so the, yeah, I think that bodes well for a real buyer who's got real money, who's sophisticated, who gets it. Because... You and I were both doing stupid things when the market was just going crazy, you, just to compete overpaying, putting up big deposits, waiving contingencies, things that a normal person would just never think of or do, and you had to do it.
1: And, and, and Barry, you, 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 you identified one of the, the really important items. People were waiving, doing non-contingent offers and no financing contingencies. And today, uh, I, I believe there are a lot of opportunities to put those conditions back into uh, purchase contracts to have the opportunity to do, you know, thorough due diligence over a 14 or 21 day period, and put in a financing contingency as well, which was almost unheard of the last couple of years. But I think today, with uh, the rise in interest rates and and some of the lenders that are no longer active, I think that's a, a really important item to uh for any purchaser yeah. to try to negotiate with the seller and to have the time uh, necessary to obtain uh all the financing uh, uh options out there or, or seek them because in some cases uh there still are some lenders that are being very competitive and and i think those are uh you know important aspects of any deal today so so i think that's that, that's exactly right there's 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 desperation on the seller side, not on the buyer side. Anyway. Well, and,
0: and, and, yeah. And the, and the reality of it is it used to be that the seller didn't really care if they closed quickly, they would push you, they would try and run it up. They would try and make you remove all the contingencies. And now what we're seeing is what I'll call the retrade, right? And so, Oh, my lender came back and raised the rate. Oh, my lender did this. And so now yeah. you have a guy who's out there who you can't feel or touch as the lender. And then you basically blame it on the lender and people come back for a retrade. And so it's also persuasive of the deal, I think, right? So if you rewind the perception of the deal was, I have to pay full price. I have to do things that I wouldn't normally do to separate myself from somebody else who would be a crazy, stupid buyer who would do something that would be unheard of to now it's, Hey, I'm going to come back and, and massage it. And really time is on the buyer side. Uh, on, on the one hand, y- you may pay more in interest rate. On the other hand, I don't think the sellers got five people lined up and, and the threat of, I've got a backup buyer. If you don't step up and do this right now, I'm going to go to this other guy. I, I, you know, that doesn't sway me in today's world. You're
1: you're, you're correct. The buyer holds a lot of the cards today. And and I think, uh, you know, in terms of trying to negotiate the best deal, uh, it's, it's during the due diligence period and getting your financing that you have opportunities to go back to the seller and negotiate better pricing, uh, because it's either, oh, your rent collections aren't as good as, uh, I was, uh, it was presented to me. Or the rent growth isn't quite as strong as I thought it would be, or your property condition is right. uh, you just lower put, quality right. than I thought it would be, and we have some, you know, more expensive capital improvements, and and contractors are charging more for those costs, and of course it's the financing. So I think there are a lot of uh,
0: legitimate. Uh, yeah they're all the true i mean they're all real things yeah they're all real things that that somebody should take into consideration you just didn't right. have any legs to get anywhere with it before and and i think you do Let, let's switch gears uh, uh for a second because we got a lot we could you and i could go all day uh you have retail properties you have hotels you have student housings uh, let's right. touch on those briefly uh, while we have time so let's start with the hotel uh something near and dear to your heart you guys have been in the hotel world in the what I'll call the boutique smaller hotel in Los Angeles for a while. And and, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but all kinds of challenges, not only from COVID, COVID, but from labor laws, wages, operational issues, construction costs, supply chain. Where do we stand today and what are the biggest challenges in the hotel world that you're seeing?
1: So I just have a very small snapshot and window into the hotel business and, uh, I find it to be a very challenging business as well, particularly in, uh, Los Angeles. And, 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 and I understand it's, it's much, much, much more challenging in San Francisco because of, uh, the decline in tourism, but, but in Los Angeles uh the hotel industry was was severely impacted as all hospitality was during uh, covid when our occupancy rates went down into single digits and this is a hotel that was you know operating at 90 percent occupancy and so it was a a pretty dramatic change so we had to cut labor uh, very drastically in order just to try to make ends meet and as the pandemic uh restrictions uh ended certainly then business rebounded and it's, it's gone in fits and spurts. Uh, it's been a combination of tourism, and then it's been a combination of business, and then the two get blended and blurred together because people now uh, tend to work more remotely than they did in the past. Sure. So we've adjusted our marketing to try to make our hotel more appealing to that Uh, business traveler that's also planning to mix in more leisure and vice versa. People who are on leisure trips are also mixing in more business. And so our hotel has uh, really rebounded and we're now running at about 80, 85% occupancy. Our room rate uh, has rebounded significantly, not quite to where it was pre-pandemic. But now the big challenge is, uh, as you've identified, is the uh, labor costs. The City of Los Angeles has recently passed a what's called a housekeeping ordinance, which severely limits the uh, number of rooms that housekeepers can clean. And this ordinance has also been passed in West Hollywood and Santa Monica. I'm sure there's pressure to try to get it passed in Beverly Hills. And, and so the, the labor costs have increased dramatically. And so that's been a challenge. And so and, also, and
0: not to interrupt you, but so, so yeah. what's the logic behind limiting the number of rooms that you can clean? I mean, I, I get it when the airline does it and says we're going to limit the pilots the number of hours they can fly because they might be fatigued and kill people. But uh, what's the logic behind limiting cleaning a room?
1: Well, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very labor intensive job to, to clean rooms. And I imagine it was Originated because there were probably some hotel owners or motel owners that that may have had uh, practices that that were not in the best interest of the employees. Um, I can speak personally. We our hotel is managed by uh, a very large uh, hotel operator, uh, you know, very large national and publicly traded hotel operator. So their labor policies and procedures were much more conducive to uh, taking account the wellness and benefits and health of, of the employee workers, but that's not the same for all hotel owners and all hotel management companies. So I think the, the labor unions were uh, very influential in getting these uh, housekeeping ordinances passed uh, as, as a, a way to try to protect uh, housekeepers in hotels that were non-union and so a lot of these uh, restrictions are sort of similar to uh, unionized hotels. And from what I understand, there's also a new uh, resolution pending before the city council to also further increase the hourly wage for hotel workers, where I believe it's going to be raised to $25 an hour. And it will be raised $1 an hour per year through uh the date of the olympics
0: so so by the time the olympics come somebody cleaning hotel rooms could be making sixty seventy thousand dollars a year in los angeles
1: yes also get paid overtime (laughs) yes it will become a high-paying job
0: right and so i i guess the simple answer is look in order to be able to operate a hotel and in order to be able to meet the demands of rising operational costs is that not then either a passed on to the consumer in just higher room rates if you can do it and if you can't it's just right off the bottom line as the owner investor
1: it's, it's, it's very difficult to to make ends meet unless you're a luxury hotel so what we're trying to do is upgrade the quality of our hotel to be more in line with a luxury hotel so we can further push room rates because unless we can push room rates higher it is very difficult to cover those additional labor costs no. and so if you're a uh a middle tier or a lower scale hotel, it's even more difficult because there's there's less, you know, pricing opportunity to raise room rates. Whereas with luxury hotels, you know, the the people who are, you know, staying at those hotels, price is rarely an issue for them.
0: And what I found also just in my own travels is that if you have a hotel that's more geared towards a business clientele, you'll find that the rates are higher during the week and then lower on the weekend because they have less traffic and vice versa. That would be a typical example. It would be Las Vegas, where you can go and stay during the week for a fraction of what it costs you if you just want to go Friday to Sunday.
1: So, so we, we try to even it out. So we have a, a strong, uh, business presence Tuesday through Thursday. And then our hotel appeals to, you know, the leisure traveler visiting Los Angeles for the weekend, Friday through Sunday. And, you know, Sunday, Mondays are usually what we call our shoulder days where we have the lowest level of demand. And then it spikes right back up Tuesday through Saturday. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out uh, packages and, and offers to fill up the uh, hotel room Sunday, Monday, but we have to do well seven days a week, 24 hours a day
0: to make it. Yeah. I mean, it's a constant. uh, It's every day of the week. So let's just talk briefly, because we've got a couple minutes left. I want to talk student housing, because I know you you are in that. In some instances, we are in it together. And uh, while the universities are all back, they're open, kids are back at school, the whole COVID issue of people not showing up to classes and doing it virtually is over. What is the prognosis for student housing moving forward? I mean, is that a segment of the real estate market that you feel like really has promise going forward?
1: We like student housing a lot primarily because we obtain guarantors on all of our leases from the students parents so we have very good collections so throughout the pandemic with all the restrictions and rent moratoriums that were passed by uh cities counties state federal we have almost perfect collections at all of our student housing so from that perspective student housing performed very well during the pandemic and even during the period when uh, uh, people were studying from home, uh, students wanted to be near campus. They wanted to have that interaction. They wanted to have that college uh, experience, and so we found it to be uh, very resilient. And now that we're you know past COVID and, and the moratoriums and the restrictions have ended, uh, we're finding that that the student housing continues to perform well. So, so we like that space quite a bit.
0: And, and it's location, location. I mean, if you have a good location for the student housing with proximity to university and then there's built in demand because of it, right. then it's
1: almost you, like beachfront.
0: Yeah. When you're close
1: to a university.
0: No, I, I agree. I mean, it's like i owning retail on a main corner. Like if you've right. got the spot, people want to be there and there's demand. And while there's heavy turnover and retenanting costs and, and fix up, it, it is a built in market. I, I like it. I mean, I think long-term it's here to stay.
1: Yes, the universities are are here to stay, and we like being near the big public universities and the and the large private universities, and uh, those are the colleges that are popular. and And yes, if you can manage the turnover costs
0: and keep the part and, and keep the parties to a minimum, right? Then you'll be keep all right. The
1: parties to a minimum, <laughs> yes, and don't allow too many beer pong tables in the living room. So so we have to uh, manage that as best we can.
0: Yeah. So real quick, your perspective on the economy as a whole, Uh, interest rates higher or lower than where they are today by the end of the year, or the same? I think
1: likely about the
0: same. And lending, the ability to get a loan, the requirements from a lender more difficult later in the year, the same easier than they stand today?
1: I think it will continue to be a challenge, but I think projects that are low leveraged and by strong sponsors with experience, will continue to be able to get uh, loans at competitive rates. I think lenders are going to be uh, less inclined to lend to lower quality borrowers and to those with less experience. And I think that's why uh, there are a lot of these debt funds that uh, have money, but it's much more expensive money, um, you know, eight, nine, 10%. So, so I think anybody who has, uh, uh, a highly speculative deal or anybody who doesn't have uh, experience is going to, to have pay, you're to at borrow a much higher
0: rate. Yeah, you're going to pay a premium. And, and finally, cap rates, the same higher or lower. And, and I realize that's a big, broad question. I think those question. are
1: going up. I think cap yeah. rates are going up. I think they have to,
0: right? I mean, yeah. I think it's been a slow move, but I think there has to be some moves at the end of the day. It's just not, uh, they're not in sync with where interest rates are and, and, and borrowing ability. So I told you to go quick. It always does. We are unfortunately out of time. You and I could go all day. I'd need more coffee and uh, some breakfast, but I do appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts and talking about your business and always good to catch up with you and and chat with you and look forward to seeing you in person soon. I do want to wish you and your family and your business much continued success in the future. Uh, And again, appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Barry, and I appreciate being invited. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I hope your uh, listeners were able to uh, get some additional insight into the real estate market. and. I look forward to coming on again sometime.
0: Yeah. So nothing better than two old guys just talking about what the heck they've been doing during the week. So for those of you out there, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. I am Barry Saywitz, president of the Saywitz Company. Uh, I want to thank all the folks here at OC Talk Radio, as always, for helping us put on the show. Uh, If it's Tuesday, we will be back here again next Tuesday talking more real estate. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in. you have it. You've been listening to Let's Talk Real Estate, your weekly BS with Barry Sawitz about the current state of the real commercial real estate market right here in Southern California. On Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio, streaming live from our studio here at the University of California, Irvine's Beal Applied Innovation
1: Center.